invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. We're going to read through to verse 11, beginning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Our Lord says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks or asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if, you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Uh, Jesus has been showing us the high standard of righteousness that governs his kingdom. And he's been calling his disciples, those who believe in him, uh, to, to obey this, to, to live up to this, to pursue this. Uh, disciples of Christ are those who have been redeemed by God's grace and are those who now, belonging to Christ, are those who seek after this righteousness. And, and Jesus has told us that this righteousness is nothing less than the very moral perfection of God at the end of chapter 5. He concludes all this with, Therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Obviously, the standard is so very high. That standard of righteousness, it's, it's perfection. And so we, we've said over and over again that Jesus is not, uh, this is not a sermon that Jesus preached that is one of legalism, where he's saying, you, you live up to these things and then God will be pleased with you. You live up to these things, you do all of this, and then you will enter into the kingdom of God. We enter into the kingdom of God by faith. Uh, we enter in by uh, receiving the new birth, having our hearts made new, renewed within, and then that changes who we are and it works its way outward. And so the Sermon on the Mount began with those Beatitudes describing the character of kingdom citizens, those who are in the kingdom of heaven. And so the sermon, as it goes through uh, the law of God and as Christ is explaining to us what righteousness is, it certainly uh, drives us again to Christ to see our need for the Lord Jesus. There's no way we're going to obey this such that we would justify ourselves before God. And so we are then in need of Christ. We're in need of His righteousness being credited to our account if we are to stand uh, declared holy before God. We are in need of Christ to die to save us to forgive us from our sins as we have violated the standard of righteousness we find here uh, over and over again throughout our lives and yet this teaching isn't here simply to drive us to christ that we might be justified by grace it does that but jesus is also instructing us in these things that what he is saying here might indeed govern our lives. That this is what his people, that believers, would indeed pursue. And that we would do this because we are justified 
by God's grace. You're reminded and have been reminded, even in this Sermon on the Mount, as we've gone through it, that we are saved by God's grace, made new, so that we might then walk in holiness, seeking after these things. Again, believers are those characterized as those who seek the kingdom of God, who who love righteousness and seek righteousness, hunger and thirst for it, Jesus said. And so this sermon is explaining to us what it is, what this is, to to seek after righteousness, to uh, seek after holiness. But sometimes we can read this, we read what Jesus is teaching us and telling us, and, and we can become discouraged. We read of this high and holy demand that is upon us, and, and we become discouraged because we know that we fail this regularly, routinely, constantly. And so we know, yes, we are justified by God's grace. We are thankful for that, that this is received by faith, that I'm not trying to earn God, uh, God's favor. Christ did it for me. We know that. And yet, even as we think about the pursuit of holiness as God's people, we still can become discouraged because it seems so impossible. It's so high, the standard of righteousness. And I know my, you know, the more we go, the more we seem to learn just how low of a starting place we started from and how evil our hearts indeed are, and it becomes discouraging. Our continual failure is before us, and then we can end up losing some of our vigor to pursue righteousness. And I would suggest to you that this battle, that feeling, that sense that we can get, that discouragement, is the very reason we have verses 7 to 11 here in this text. We are often tempted to be discouraged, to be downcast, when we think about our sinfulness And then maybe even to just become complacent or maybe lazy. We feel defeated and we just kind of, well, I guess I'm just not a very spiritual person. And we just kind of make peace with our sinfulness and we relegate ourselves to some sort of, you know, I don't know, second class Christian or something like that. Well, I guess that's just not really for me. But Jesus, in these words here, I think rebukes that kind of thinking. I say rebuke, but it's not as if he takes a sledgehammer to you. He, he corrects this by really presenting something to us that is really quite remarkable. He calls his people to continually seek Christian maturity while also revealing that God has promised us grace to help us reach it. It is not just that he gives us a command, but we also have promises in this text. We have assurances given to us by the Lord Jesus himself. These promises and assurances that we need to hear. There is much comfort in these words if we would hear these words. If you have a desire for godliness, but you've been discouraged in your pursuit of it, if if your prayers need some help, or perhaps if you tend to view God 
because of your ongoing sinfulness as maybe just tolerating you. I trust these words, this text will be a help to you, will be an encouragement to you, that you might press on joyfully, that you might see again the goodness of God and his love for his children. So as we go through this, we're going to look at just a two-point outline. We're going to look at the command that is given here, the command and then followed by the promise. So first of all, the command. Christ calls his people here to the continual pursuit of Christian maturity. So look at verse 7 again. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We are told here to do three different things. To ask, to seek, and to knock. And these three things are really... Essentially, they are synonyms. They're synonymous. They're getting at one thing. They're perhaps different angles talking about the same general thing. So if you think about asking, obviously, that makes us think of uh, words. That makes us think of, of prayer, of petitioning God for something. To seek after something is to look for it. And often we would think of prayer as well as we think of seeking. Uh, Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. David was seeking the Lord through praying to God and asking God for things and God responding and answering David's prayer. And then we're told here knocking, to knock, which implies that we're standing outside of something that we're seeking to enter into. All of this points to something that has not yet been attained in its completion. Many rightly point out that these commands, these imperatives to ask, seek, and knock are the types of uh, present tense imperatives that are telling us that we are to continually perform an action. We are to continually ask. We are to persistently seek and constantly knock. That's what Jesus is telling us. He's not not just telling us to do something once, a one-time thing. Ask once, seek once, just give it one knock. He's, he's, he's telling us uh, to, to repeat this process, to continually do this. And so together, to ask, seek, and knock, this pictures the continual pursuit of something. And the question, of course, is what? What are we seeking? What are we pursuing? Some might think that this is talking about one's initial entrance into the kingdom of God. I don't think that is correct. That's the correct way uh, to to read this for a number of reasons. Uh, Jesus is still talking here to and addressing kingdom citizens, those who are already in the kingdom of heaven. He's still addressing those who are already in. Uh, In verse 13, he will begin to Uh, talk about matters of entering into the kingdom. Um, But the the section we are in, he's still addressing his disciples. And that section will end in verse 12, which we'll see next week, where he summarizes uh, a bunch of what he has been describing. And we'll look at that next week. And then verse 13 really begins this last uh, major section, uh, which we'll get to, uh, of course, in a couple of weeks. 
So I don't think just given the context, the fit here, that he's now talking about uh, how one becomes a member of his uh, citizen, uh, a citizen of his kingdom. Um, also, when we think about becoming a believer, uh, this is not something that one continually asks for and strives for and, and, and isn't really ever sure that they are indeed in the kingdom of God. That's not how scripture presents it. Um, as we think about one who is born again, while we may not be able to point with an obvious precision that this is the hour and moment that I was born again, uh, there's a definite event that occurs in which a person passes from death to life and enters into the kingdom and believes in Christ. Moreover, we think of Romans chapter 3, which is quoting a number of Psalms. We look at Romans 3, 10, and so on, which tells us that there is nobody who seeks after God. The reality is the unbelieving world does not seek after God, let alone do they continually seek after God. They are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And it takes the Spirit of God to awaken that sinner, to make them new for that person to believe in Christ and, and to then continue to seek after Him. So this is not speaking of initial entrance, seeking initial entrance into the kingdom. Rather, it is best to view this here as a, a call to continual pursuit of Christian maturity. I think there's a, a number of words we could use to describe what we're pursuing here, what we're called to seek after. We could say something like the fullness of the Christian life. That's a little bit vague. I think we could rightly say to pursue sanctification. We're pursuing holiness. We're seeking after righteousness. I think all of those things are true and would, would fit. I believe what Jesus is calling us to seek after and pursue here are the things that he has already told us that we're to seek after and pursue. The righteousness he has been outlined. I think it is similar, the same thing really, ultimately, just slightly different language to what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. This was the text that was read earlier for us. There, Paul talks about how he has not yet attained perfection. He talks about perfection. We could say Jesus is telling us to seek after that, to pursue perfection. I just want to read a little more of what Paul said there. In Philippians 3.10. He's, he's again, he's renouncing his own efforts, his own establishment of his own righteousness before God. He's rejecting all of that in order to be found in Christ Jesus. And he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is, that time that is in the future when this perfection he desires and longs for will be brought to its completion. In verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul understands Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
He has done this by his, his work, his life and death, his resurrection. God has brought me to himself through Christ Jesus. I belong to him. And now, as one who is justified by God's grace and a citizen of Christ's heavenly kingdom, Christ is sanctifying me, bringing me to perfection that will ultimately be brought to completion when he returns. And so now, what am I doing in this life, in this earthly body? I'm seeking after that very thing. If I belong to Christ, he's purchased me to the end that I am going to be made perfect one day. I'm seeking that even now with whatever time the Lord gives me here and now. Paul says, I've not yet attained this, but I'm seeking after it. And he uses that language of striving, of pursuit. And so this is talking here, Christ is about this pursuit of perfection, of holiness, of righteousness. That is ultimately, of course, ours at the final resurrection. When he will come and bring about the perfection of maturity in his people. When he will bring this to completion. This is what he's telling us to ask for, to seek after, to knock for. Maturity, holiness, righteousness in everything, in our thoughts, in our deeds, in our desires, in our actions. That we might be those who desire the things of the Lord and seek after it. Who's, who seek to live in light of the Sermon on the Mount, in obedience to it. That God might work that very thing in us. And I want to add that I, I don't just mean here, when I say seeking holiness or righteousness, we might just think of my individual personal piety. That is, of course, a very important aspect of our sanctification and our maturity. But I'm using the phrase Christian maturity for a reason. Because as we've seen, our sanctification does not just concern ourselves. Maturity in Christ is not just about me and my own personal actions and thoughts and so on. We have a concern for others. We have a concern that goes outside of ourselves. There's much more to the Christian life than even just my personal piety. As we've seen, we have a concern that reaches to our brothers and sisters, our fellow believers, such that we would see a speck in their eye and we would desire to help a brother or sister to remove that. Of course, Jesus has told us we, we go with a certain attitude and a, and a humility dealing with the log that is in our own eye and then addressing the speck that is in our brother's eye. We have seen that we are to be those who are forgiving others. We forgive our brothers and sisters and others who come to us and ask us for that forgiveness. That's part of maturity, is granting that forgiveness. We also know that we live in the world. We live in an unbelieving world. And the Sermon on the Mount has pointed us to concern for the unbelieving world as well, that we might be salt and light as individuals and also together as his people, that we would be salt and light in this unbelieving world, that we would indeed love our enemies, that we would pray for those who persecute us, as Jesus has already taught us.
Maturity in Christ involves growing in our faith. That is, our, our confidence in God and in His Word. In the salvation that is declared within the Word of God. Our confidence in who God is. Growth in our knowledge of Him. Maturing in our understanding of God and who He is. As we read His Word. As we study His Word. As we continue to gather as His people in church and learn about His Word and about God Himself. All of these things are aspects of what it is we are pursuing, seeking after, longing for. They are the very blessings of our salvation that we have not yet received in full. In God's providence and in His good plans, we do not reach maturity overnight. A Christian is one who is declared righteous in our standing before God the the moment we believe on account of what Christ has done. And then that justified believer in Christ is then made gradually, progressively more righteous in their person over time. So our standing before God is declared righteous, holy, positionally, that is what you are. The moment you believe, you do not add to that. You don't grow in that. You grow in your understanding of it, but that never changes from the moment you are the the earliest, most baby of Christians to the time you are the most mature of Christians, that is always solely on account of God's grace to you because of what Christ has accomplished. But then the moment we believe, God begins then to sanctify us as well, to conform us into the image of Christ. Uh, He's making us to share in His holiness, making us more like Him. And this is something that is a process. It is also comes to us as a result of our being united to Christ in faith. It is a gift from God to us. But it takes place and unfolds over time. And as His people, from our standpoint and perspective, it is often a very painfully long time. That's how it feels to us at least. It is this that is often very frustrating to Christians, to believers, to genuine born-again people because we get tired year after year of coming to face once again our own sinfulness. When our, our weakness becomes so manifest, so evident to us, time and time again and we have these visions when we become a christian and we get fired up so we're so excited and we feel like nothing can touch us and do whatever you want to me because this and we and and we see this tremendous blast of growth and suddenly i care about the things of the lord and i never did before and we just imagine wow how this is going to just we're going to take off like a rocket and just grow and it's going to be just up you know and 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 not And then 40 years later, 10 years later, it could be shorter than that. We look at ourselves and think, this isn't exactly what I envisioned. We become aware that we weren't maybe as mature as we thought we were out of the gate. And we've been battling now for years with our flesh. And we still 
find ourselves finding new sins we didn't even know were there. We don't even remember struggling with these things years ago, and now here they are. And it's this very experience that makes God's people sometimes come to the point where we look at this and we think, am I even a believer? Am I even a Christian? We begin to doubt our salvation. We struggle with assurance that we do indeed belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have this concept in our minds that it's just going to be this nice, smooth climb to holiness. And that is not at all what the scriptures teach us about it. It's not what they present to us. There's a reason why Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. Because it's not just this simple process where we just sit back and it just in this easygoing climb up to righteousness. Our Lord is telling us here, ask, seek, knock. Why? Because there's going to be times you're going to be discouraged. He's calling you to persevere in this, to keep after it. Luke gives us these same words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11. And this teaching to ask, seek, and knock comes right after a parable about this man who shows up late at night to his friend's house. And he knocks, and he wants help, he wants food, and he's got his family there. And the man says, go away. He says, I'm in bed already, and my family's in bed. Come back in the morning. And the man keeps knocking and says, no, he won't take no for an answer. And finally, the guy reluctantly gets out of bed and opens the door and welcomes the guy in and helps him out. And following that, immediately, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. Again, persistently, continually, ask, seek, and knock. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If even a man who doesn't want to get out of bed and is annoyed by his friend's appearance at his door late at night will eventually get up if you ask, seek, and if you knock enough, how much more will your God who loves you, your God who is a good father to you, how much more will he not delight to answer your prayers? He will. And so the context in Luke, again, just brings home this idea that Jesus is teaching us to persevere in this, to persist in this, which means he understands that it's going to be a battle that will require a continual persistence and perseverance. That is, people will fight discouragement in it. Similarly, in Luke 18, we have the parable of the persistent widow. She badgers this judge into giving her justice. He wants no part of it. He's an unjust judge and he's annoyed. But finally, he gives in to this widow because she just won't leave him alone. So just to get rid of her, he finally rules in her favor and gives her justice. And we're told there by Luke, that Jesus told this parable to the effect that they, his disciples, ought always to pray and not lose heart. And again, if this judge who's not just will, will finally give in and, and relent, if you just badger him enough, how much more will God not answer the prayers of his people? And we're explicitly told there the point of the parable that we might pray and not lose heart in our praying. And continue to pray. This 
reminds us of our continual neediness. Again, it implies that we will and that we do lack something. We are still without. In our person, we have not received yet every blessing of God that He has promised to His people. We seek and we continue to strive for it. Heinrich Bollinger, he was a, a reformer, Swiss reformer, lived in the 1500s. Speaking of this text, he said, We therefore, being shut out from the joys of paradise, by prayer do seek and ask for that which we have lost and have not. We seek, we continually to ask for the joy of the Lord. We lack it. We seek it. We ask for it. We continue to seek it. We are sinners. We continue to seek and ask and strive for holiness and for righteousness. We are not those who simply say, well, I fall short of God's glory. So I guess that's it. I'll just uh, kind of live my life over here. I'm just not spiritual like maybe others. That's not the believer's attitude. Jesus calls us here to seek. We do this. We ask. We knock. We hunger and thirst for it. And I'm not there yet, but we press on for it. We pray for it and we ask and we do this over and over again. We are those who have a realistic understanding that our progress in these things involve battle. We read from Philippians 3, Paul talking about his striving, his running. It's, it's this race and striving, this kind of fighting and pursuing language, straining. And then in Romans chapter 7, we read more about Paul's struggle in this as a believer. That he does the things he doesn't want to do. He looks and sees the things he wants to do. The righteous things that God has revealed. And yet he often finds himself not doing them. We understand there's going to be battle. We understand as Paul did in Philippians 3 and at the end of Romans chapter 7, that ultimately our, our perfection will be reached only at the end when the Lord Jesus returns. Of course, it is true that when we die, if we die before the Lord comes, our spirits go to be with the Lord. Uh, it's the spirits uh, are, are made perfect in heaven. The Bible uses that language to speak of dead believers whose spirits are with the Lord. But we also call that the intermediate state. Because our ultimate perfection is going to be when the Lord returns and we experience the final resurrection. That is really what the scriptures point to as the, the final completion, the consummation of Christ's kingdom. And our, when we will receive uh, imperishable bodies, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. So we know that that is when our ultimate perfection will come. But in the meantime, and as we go through our days, it is one of pursuit of righteousness, of battle against sin. And we do not make peace with our sin. We do not indulge in it, even as we understand that, that we will be engaged in this battle till the time the Lord calls us home or until the time that he returns. 
And again, it is from God that we seek these things. It is God that we go to and ask for this. It is his door that we are knocking upon. This is not just saying, look, try harder. It's saying, seek these things from God. Pray for these things. Continue to strive, certainly. Continue to seek discipline. But ask God also to do this work in you. This is how he has designed this. We wish it would just happen. We wish we would just ask once and he would just make it so. But it's not his will. It's not his plan. We are told this here and throughout scripture. And does this not just force us to continue to realize that our ultimate only hope of eternal life is the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not one or the other. Even in Philippians 3, Paul 100% renounces his own efforts as the grounds of his standing. He's doing away with all of it, the first part of Philippians 3. It's rubbish, he says. It's his whole hope of eternal life is Christ. And because Christ Jesus has made him his own and he possesses that eternal life, that's the fuel for his pursuit of godliness. And as we struggle and lack, it reminds us again and again and again that our hope is Christ. I'm reminded of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I quoted him a lot. When he was dying, his good friend and biographer, Ian Murray, spoke with him. And Murray recounts this in his biography. I know I've shared this before, but... And, and Lloyd-Jones was talking about how he just was rejoicing in, in, in the gospel. He was rejoicing in Christ. I have no hope other than Christ. And, and Murray makes a comment back to him, and I'm paraphrasing, but he makes a comment that he used to think that that seemed kind of weird when godly people would get to the end of their days and, and, and they're just saying they're, you know, all they can think of as being good is Christ and he, th- he thought that was kind of a bit odd and maybe even an immature thing to say. And we might think that, you know, wow, a pastor who's, who's had tremendous fruit throughout all of his ministry and, and it gets to the end and he says, I have nothing except Christ and, and my boast is him and him crucified. And, and, and Lloyd-Jones responds and said, yeah, I used to think that way too. He said, but when you come to this point, you'll say the same thing. You'll make the same boast. I have nothing but Christ Jesus. He is my sole hope and boast. Because we get to the end after so many years. These are just men who understood their sinfulness through to the end. Their weakness and their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that even after all of their years of striving and their hours and days spent in prayer and seeking the Lord and prayer and all that, at the end of it all, none of of anything they had accomplished was because they were so great. All of this was tied to Christ Jesus alone. They were still sinful. They knew it. And they were trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So this process that frustrates us sometimes, this slow growth, just keeps us, remind, reminds us that our ultimate hope is solely Christ. He is our only boast. So we again see here the call to this continual pursuit of Christian maturity. Now on its own, just being called to continually 
seek after this and keep asking and so on, it, it may not be all that encouraging on its own. The fact remains we are weak. We've tried. We do try. We struggle to keep doing this. So let's look at the promise here. The promise that Christ gives us. And that is that God has promised to his children that he will give the grace to bring us to maturity. The promises here are here to rouse us from our inactivity. That's, that was John Calvin's language. These precious promises. There are assurances here that make this asking and this seeking and this knocking a hopeful prospect that can turn it into a joyful thing, an exciting occasion even. So listen, Jesus says again, verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You hear the assurance there. The promise is given. That you will receive the thing for which you ask. This is so important. This is so important to believe, to understand. Our human experience is often such that we, we ask and then we don't seem to receive. And then we read this text and think, that's awkward, I, that doesn't seem to work. But again, God, Christ is telling us to continually pray. To pray with persistence, to persevere in it, to continually seek after that thing that we desire. Notice, we don't pray once and then go sit on the couch and then just wait for it to all unfold. We think of, for, for example, perhaps you need wisdom for something. You need wisdom. You pray for it. Pray for it once and then just go, go on your way and that's it. That's how we often think of it. We just pray for it once and we just want a download to our system and now we just know how to act with wisdom. Now, I think sometimes we pray for it and we do just come to an understanding that is wise, that suddenly clarity might come to our minds. I think that can happen. I'm not denying that. But if we think about what Jesus is saying here, we ask and we continually ask. We seek after it. We open the word of God. Wisdom is not just a direct download from the Lord to our brains. Wisdom is found in the scriptures. We read the Bible. We seek to study it, that we might understand it and how to then apply it in the situations that we face. We continually seek after it. We pray for wisdom as we continually to look, uh, look for it. This is true for all matters of sanctification, of perfection. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
What is the will of God for you? We say that we often want to know God's secret plans for us for tomorrow. And we try to divine that. He hasn't told you. I don't know it. We don't know it. We don't know what his secret will is for you. Paul says here, the will of God for you that you can know is your sanctification. We're also told this. That if you pray according to God's will, you have what you ask for. We find that language a number of places. 1 John 5, 14 to 15 is one. God's will for you is your sanctification. If you pray according to God's will, you have what you ask for. Is this what you pray for? Do you pray for your sanctification? Do you seek after it? You will receive it. It is explicitly God's will for you. Jesus is telling you, if you seek after these things, God will be faithful to answer. He will sanctify you. He will see you through to the end. He will bring you to that place. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen right away. So what do we do? Well, I tried and I give up. No, we keep asking. We keep seeking and we will receive it. That's what he's saying. We know that God doesn't always answer us in the way we want him to answer us. We sang from John Newton's hymn earlier, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And in that hymn, we are reminded that God often answers prayers in ways we don't expect it. We want more grace. We want to know him more. We expect a wonderful occasion where we are lit up Maybe the room is lit up with light and we just feel fantastic and we understand all these things. That's what we think of when we think of, I want to know you and experience your grace. And then God answers the prayer, but in a way we often don't expect. And sometimes it's some crushing trial that comes to us. That's not what we expected. But we are told in Scripture that God disciplines those he loves that we might share in his holiness. Again, how often we think we get into difficult circumstances and we pray, God, take this circumstance from me. And he doesn't seem to do it right away. And we think, well, I thought, how does this work? Do I have the thing I received or not? Is he listening or not? Well, part of our prayer ought to be, God, teach me through this. Sanctify me through this. Make me holy through this. I think it's right to pray that he would bring the trial to an end, that the suffering of whatever sort it is might come to an end. I think that's good and right to pray for that. But it's not all we pray for. We don't simply pray to be spared difficulty. But we pray that we would be refined and enabled to be faithful in the midst of difficulty. Really, is that not of greater ultimate concern? It is. I think it's, we know that we are told to pray for our leaders, that we might live lives of peace. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is good when God's people can gather without being oppressed by the authorities and so on. It's good to pray for that. It's good to desire that. 
But we also have assurances that if that doesn't happen, even if things got really bad all around us, God is still so committed to you, to his people, that he will sanctify you through it. That he will not give you the temptation beyond what you are able to bear and handle. But he will provide for you a way through it to stand. That's his promise to you. So as we think about all the what-ifs that could happen, whether it's sickness that could come or all the, I mean, any number of calamities that could come or if it's society and what's going to happen that bothers you, remember that God is faithful to his people and he will see you through to the end and sanctify you. We don't know how that could possibly be now. We think, man, I feel like I would completely buckle if, you know, if, if, the, if X happened. But God is faithful to his people and he will see you through. So we trust him and we don't have to live in terror of whatever may or may not be tomorrow. This process of growth and sanctification is one that is painfully slow to us. But we must take a long view of it. Remember the promises here. God will pour out from His bounty upon His people. He will answer. He will sanctify. He will keep you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who asks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And it is not as if God does this reluctantly. Again, how often when you're faced with your sin and you find it to pray for sanctification, you come to God and you feel maybe ridiculous and ashamed and you have that thought that if he's listening, he surely must simply be tolerating me and and nothing more. Well, listen to verses 9 to 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It is God's delight to give good gifts, good things to his children. He loves the prayers of his people. He delights to give that which is good. Christ is assuring you here of God's good intentions towards you. And of course, it is important that we remember, as we've really been saying, that we It's important that we would define good as God defines good. Sometimes we pray for something that we maybe assume is good and and maybe in some ways would be good. But God might see it differently. We don't think of trial as good, as suffering as good, but we know that God brings good to his people through those trials. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Again, he disciplines us 
Hebrews 12, that we might share in his holiness. God delights to give you good things. And of course, we're talking about trial and difficulty, but let's also just be very honest too, that God gives us a lot of good things that are easily recognized as being good. How many good things do you just have to enjoy that God has granted you? God is committed to his church. He is committed to bring us through anything and everything safely into his eternal kingdom. He will complete the work that he has begun. And to this end, we pray. To this end, we continually strive. If that's the end for which he has saved us, he's bringing us to that point of perfection If that's what I've been redeemed for, then that's what I am seeking after and pursuing and praying for even now. That's Paul's attitude in Philippians 3. That's what Jesus is commending to us. And so as the Christian life and its total claim upon you threatens to become overwhelming, especially in light of your ongoing battle with sin, It is critical to remember God's goodness towards you. That he has fatherly intentions. That he has promised to provide help for you. To do good to you. Continue to pray to God. Continue to seek him. Continue to seek His righteousness. Go to your good Father continually. And of course, again, I just want to add to this, mentioned it earlier, but that seeking God is not something that is just a solo effort, a solo sport. Christ gives us the church with men and women variously gifted for the edification and the building up of the church, of one another. Their personal study of Scripture, personal prayer, this is important, this is good. Christ has told us to pray so that no one might even know. Go into the closet, shut the door and pray, that's good. But we also are called to gather together, to participate together in the means of grace, the reading of the word, hearing the word preached, singing the truths of the word, praying, receiving the sacraments or the ordinances of of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, these are vehicles by which God supplies grace to his people. And so as we think about seeking and asking and pursuing, we should continually try to put ourselves in the way of God's means of grace to us. If this is a way in which God strengthens and encourages and helps his people and sanctifies his people, then let's be all in with it. Again, there's personal study and prayer 
and there's the corporate gathering too, neither of which are to be neglected. So hear these words of Jesus, to ask, to seek, and to knock. Be confident that God hears the prayers of his people, and he will answer. Our God is a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. So let us continue to go to him and continue to ask him and fight back against discouragement. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you now. We have read your word and we have heard it. We come to you empty-handed. We are sinners in need of your grace every moment. Father, we are prone to be discouraged. We make big plans and they fail. We make plans to read, to pray, to seek you, and we flame out. We start into it and we become distracted. Father, we are weak. And that we would ever be brought to perfection can some days seem impossible. And yet, this is precisely what you have promised to do for all who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would strengthen your people to hear this, to believe this, that we might believe that just as you kept your word all throughout the scriptures, we read of your faithful dealings with your people. And though your people often doubted you in the Old Testament, you were faithful and kept your word, that you will indeed keep your word to us now, here, insignificant as we are when we consider the world over and all of human history. Yet you love your people. I pray that we would not make peace with our sin, but that we would continue to war against it, that we would continue to pray and to seek righteousness and to seek to know you more in your word. Father, we do ask that you would sanctify us. And we do pray this over and over again. I thank you where there's evidence of grace all throughout our, our church in individuals. Father, we give you thanks and praise. Any good thing surely is a result of your mercy and kindness. We pray that you would give us the strength to carry on. Father, that we would not fret and worry about tomorrow and what may or may not happen. But that we would entrust our future to you, our good God. And that we would know that whatever comes... We are strangers and aliens here. We are pilgrims in this world. And we so long for the heavenly Jerusalem. The time when we will indeed reach that point of perfection that you will carry us through to. 
So Father, encourage us and strengthen us. Help us to put no boast in any action of ours, in any work of ours, but, but purely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would answer these prayers that you might receive the honor you are due. We want you to be honored. We want to be salt and light. We want to treat one another as we are called to treat one another, to be quick to forgive, to be patient, to be loving, to be kind, gentle, to speak the truth in love, to have a true humility. So Father, do these things that you might ultimately be honored. We pray all of these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.